0: Hello, I'm Conor Pope, and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, 100 years after it was signed, we look at the treaty, the founding document of the state, and we examine how it has shaped modern Ireland.
1: Well, Mr. Collins,
0: I think I may have just signed my political death warrant. Ah,
2: I have just signed my actual death warrant.
0: On the 6th of December 1921, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed. It paved the way for the creation of the Irish state. It was signed after months of tense and often bad-tempered talks between Britain and Ireland. The aim of the treaty was to bring down the curtain on the War of Independence. But the treaty was not accepted by President Eamon de Valera back in Dublin, and that rejection led to a split in the Republican movement that would spark a bitter and bloody civil war.
3: It was to be a bitter war, setting brother against brother, neighbour against neighbour, Irishman against Irishman.
0: Countless books, plays and even a Hollywood film have all been made about the treaty.
1: This treaty bars the way to the Republic!
0: A hundred years on, what is the treaty's legacy and why is it such an important story to tell?
2: It's the story of the founding of our state. It's the story of the start of the disintegration of the British Empire.
0: So it is very obvious kind of political, historical resonances. Colin Murphy is a playwright and his latest work, The Treaty, tells the story of the negotiations that led to its signing.
2: Our proposal of external association would do nothing whatsoever
1: to undermine the empire. We cannot open this up again. I think boy, uh,
0: what I found
2: was that the story of the negotiations that led to the treaty is actually the neglected part of the overall story. W- w- you know, w- when we talk about this, we, we talk about the revolutionary period. And we go big on the revolutions, the rising, the war of independence and the tragedy of the civil war. But actually, it's this two months of talking, not fighting in London, that it, that's the kind of thing that A, appeals to me and the kind of work that I like to do as a, as a dramatist. But B, I think, has kind of gone a little under the radar in our popular culture or our historical lore. We know that Collins and Griffith came back with a treaty that caused a split. We know what happened next. We we know about the fights beforehand. But actually, most of us, and certainly me starting out, didn't know anything about what had happened over those two months of, you know, day in, day out, uh, long nights, early hours negotiations that led them to to split so dramatically from De back in Dublin.
0: We are trying to end a war. Centuries of conflict, of distrust. We each of us take our careers, our reputations in our hands.
3: We take our lives in ours. We
2: have to learn to trust each other. We cannot do that from opposite sides of a bare table.
4: Trust is earned, not given, Mr. Lloyd George.
0: Throughout October, November and early December 1921, tense negotiations on the future of Ireland took place in London. The Irish team, led by Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, were untrained and badly supplied. They had no clear instructions or guidance, and they had no agreed counter-proposals prepared. They weren't even a united team. They also faced some serious British political talent including the Prime Minister Lloyd George and the future Prime Minister Winston Churchill, as Gretchen Freeman, author of The Treaty, a new book about the negotiations, explains.
4: In the aftermath of the First World War, Lloyd George had a sort of superhuman status. He was really seen as the man who had won the war and he could do no wrong. After the awful campaign in Ireland, his reputation is not at all what it was in the aftermath of the First World War. But what he does is through that summer and leading into the treaty talks, he unites his team behind him and he gets his cabinet to absolutely be crystal clear on what their bottom line is and on what they're prepared to compromise on. Once they decide on this idea of dominion status and, and the qualifications along with that, he really doesn't deviate from that throughout the treaty talks. And I think this idea of the, the coherence of the British team, I mean, allied with their skill and experience, plus this incredible unity, you know, that really makes them such a formidable team against an Irish delegation that are fractious, they're riven with internal disputes, there's personal rivalries going on, and they can't work out ultimately what they're prepared to compromise on.
0: In the early hours of the morning of December the 6th, 1921, the talks reached a dramatic climax at Number 10 Downing Street. With the British under increasing pressure to get a deal done, an ultimatum was issued.
4: We've got to the point where Lloyd George had persuaded, effectively, Griffith to sign. He offered these concessions and Griffith, in the midst of these very tense discussions, suddenly said, turned around and said, right, I'll sign, I'll take that. Lloyd George said that wasn't enough. He needed all of the delegates to sign. And if they weren't going to sign, the alternative effectively was war and war within three days. So that was what they were left with. He produced two letters and he said, I'm going to send one to James Craig in Belfast. And it's going to say you have accepted the terms and peace has been agreed or alternatively, You haven't accepted the terms, and the alternative is war.
3: Eventually, with the threat of a renewal of terrible war as an alternative, the plenipotentiaries signed the Articles of Agreement, or Treaty, without referring back to the Cabinet in Dublin. The Treaty did not offer a republic. The terms, in effect, meant a form of Dominion status. Those who favoured acceptance felt passionately that it was the best bargain that could be got at the time and offered the freedom to achieve freedom. Among many Republicans, there was anger and disappointment. But to Lloyd George and Griffith, an honourable compromise had been reached. Ronan
0: McGreevy, in many ways, you're the Irish Times history correspondent, as you've been writing about historical events for the Irish Times for quite a few years now. And you've also made a documentary about the treaty to mark its centenary. Can you explain why this put Collins and Griffith at odds with their leader, Eamon de Valera, back in Dublin.
1: De Valera's big problem was that they had not done what they had been asked to do in the beginning, which was to refer the treaty back to Dublin to the cabinet before signing. And this is uh, due to the sort of amateurish manner in which um, the Irish delegates had been given their uh, instructions. On the one level, they were told that there were plenipotentiaries, which meant that they had the power to negotiate and sign treaties. On the other hand, they were supposed to refer the treaty back to Dublin before uh, it was signed. And, And the way it was put in their credentials was that it was understood that they would do this. Now, you know, journalism, that, that is a euphemism for, well, you know, uh, we're not really sure, but, you know, you might consider sending it back to us. So the decision was made by Griffith. that This was an honourable compromise, this deal. And he, he told Lloyd George in front of the other Irish delegates, that he was going to sign it if no, even if nobody else did. And this uh, the, the others fell in line as a result of that. The big problem was, uh, as far as de Valera was concerned, they had signed the treaty without uh, referring it back to him.
0: And was that, in essence, de Valera's only problem? Like, have the archives that we've seen since then given any, any indication what de Valera would have been happy to sign or what de Valera wanted from those negotiations?
1: We know exactly who he wanted because he set it out in an alternative document called document number two, very imaginatively phrased. But uh, his fundamental issue was, I mean, basically he wanted the same thing as what the treaty signatory signed but his idea was one of external association whereby there would be no oath of allegiance because the Irish Free State would be associated with the British Empire rather than within the British Empire. Now this is a bit of a semantic distinction but it actually is the difference between what he believed to be an entirely sovereign independent Irish state and one uh, and as long as there was a link to the crown it would not be a sovereign independent state. Now this is a matter of conjecture over the years but it's fundamentally This is what de Valera had insisted upon. But uh, on five or six different occasions, Griffith and uh, Collins had raised this issue with the British government and they had told him, no, you can't have external association. Either you come within the British Empire or it's back to war.
0: Now, the treaty was subsequently approved in the Dáil by a fairly narrow majority in January of 1922. But there's this perception that the treaty split Ireland completely into those who were pro-treaty and then those who are anti-treaty. But you don't think that's entirely
1: accurate, do you? No, I think that's a fallacy and it's one that historians need to correct now that we have the 100th anniversary of the treaty. The perception is out there that the treaty had uh, split Ireland down the middle. In fact, it hadn't. It had split the Republican movement that is Sinn Féin, the IRA, common Amman, the IRB, etc. But, you know, you have to remember that although the Republican movement in terms of their ideals uh, were at one with the people in the War of Independence, it was an entirely different matter when it came to the treaty. Now, you know, w- you, you mentioned there that the treaty was only approved by an Arab majority in the Dáil, and this gives the impression that the country was split down the middle. But but you have to remember that the, the TDs of the second Dáil who voted that were not never elected. They were simply appointed in in May 1921 without a vote. And you have to ask yourself the question whether they were representative of the people of Ireland as a whole. And I think it's important to state that the, the treaty was popular in Ireland. It was popular with all the major newspapers. In fact, only two provincial newspapers in the entire country didn't support the treaty. It was supported by the Catholic Church, which was, of course, a big uh, influence in Ireland at the time. It was supported by the trade unions, by the farmers movements, by university, down by county councils, by local authorities. So, there's, there's this, uh, there is a perception again. I come back to it that that the country was riven by it. In fact, the country was either supportive of the treaty or indifferent to it, and were not uh, very much exercised by the sort of uh, semantic distinctions as whether Ireland was in inside or outside the British Empire. And one last point I would make on that is that in June 1922, which was the first uh, general election to the Irish Free State, when the people were given the opportunity, basically, by proxy to uh, vote for or vote against the treaty, the anti-treaty Sinn Féin side in that election got 22% of the vote so I think that's more indicative of the fact that the people supported the treaty than the vote that was in the Dáil in January 1921.
0: OK, so there was broad support for the treaty, but ultimately there was still a bloody civil war between the pro-treaty side and the anti-treaty side. And of course, that civil war still resonates today. To what extent do you think the civil war influenced how the treaty came to be viewed in Ireland over the last hundred years and even as far up as today?
1: Well, unfortunately, the, the whole perception of the treaty is seen through the prism of the civil war and it is not really looked at as a document in its own right. The civil war was very bitter You know, it wasn't very long lasting because the anti-treaty side, unlike the the IRA during the War of Independence, didn't have widespread public support. So I, I think that it is regarded in that context. And I think you need to take it out of that context and look at it as for what it was, which is an international agreement between Great Britain and Ireland. In that sense, you know, the treaty actually, I mean, if you want to know what the legacy of the treaty is, look around you look at the independent irish state we have today the fact that we're uh, been a sovereign independent nation a democratic nation for the last 100 years the big drawback of the treaty and one of the reasons that we're living with it today in a in a bad way and this again never got the attention it deserved at the time but it was article 12 of the treaty which set up a boundary commission to uh, look at the um, boundary between Northern Ireland and the free state at the time and this was perceived at the time as being a, an ingenious solution by Lloyd George and it could have been. The problem was that, that the provisions in it were so woolly headed that by the time it got to meet in 1924 a conservative government had Uh, under Stanley Baldwin had uh, taken over in the UK they were very much a unionist government so they nobbled the Boundary Commission so by the time it reported in 1925 it had presented a report which really was an absolute travesty as to what nationalists in the the north of Ireland were at the time and it was shelved and we were left with the border in situ until now
0: Coming up how does the treaty compare to other international peace agreements and what has it meant for the state that it created? <laughs> Mihalo O'Fartig, you're a historian and your latest book, Birth of a State, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, examines the impact of the treaty both then and now. It is the most important document in our history, but if we broaden out the lens for a moment, is there anything comparable to the treaty on the international stage?
3: The treaty itself is is unique, but looking at the other dominions, so Ireland would take its place alongside, when it got its independence in 1921, five other dominions, Canada, uh, South Africa, Australia, New Zealand and Newfoundland, which was an independent country at the time for being absorbed into, into Canada some decades later. Now, these dominions had all achieved their substantive political independence organically. So Ireland was a completely unique case in the context of the dominions. The the only other country that fought a revolution um, against the British and had a treaty with them, of course, was the United States. And of course, it was a revolution led by Republicans as well. But with the Treaty of Paris in 1883, the British completely capitulated and gave the United States obviously not just... Full political independence, but, but full, uh, full sovereignty as well. Taking a little bit of a back step, you could look at the context of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in 1921 in, in a global sense. Uh, the Treaty of Versailles, arguably the most uh, significant treaty of the 20th century, had been signed off two years before by the British following the, uh, the First World War. And that was the treaty, of course, that, that punished and penalised Germany uh, as the loser and aggressor during the First World War. The only kind of, I suppose, threads between the Anglo-Irish Treaty and it are that the British, when they negotiated with the Sinn Féin delegation, were, were very much seasoned international treaty negotiators. They were used to putting forward their red lines and keeping their red lines. So they brought that critical experience into the Downing Street negotiations with the Irish a couple of years later. You can make a cheeky comparison as well between um, Britain leaving the European Union today and the Anglo-Irish Treaty because you know, Britain obviously aspired, as we did, to fully leave a union and it has found itself you know, substantively having left that union but still entangled in it to, uh, to, to a certain extent and an extent that promotes discord within, within the British uh, public space.
0: But of course, thankfully, the British have managed to avoid a civil war over Brexit, unlike Ireland in the post-treaty period. And to this day, we still hear about the civil war politics in Ireland and we hear politicians and political commentators often saying that something might mark the end of civil war politics, particularly when they're talking about Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. So how has the Anglo-Irish Treaty shaped politics in this country for the last 100 years?
3: It's cast a very long shadow. Uh, in the beginning was the treaty, and the whole pattern of our political culture has really developed on foot of it. So you can, trace, you can trace back this very unique set of political circumstances back to the treaty. The critical point you make there, Connor, is that it was the civil war, though, that set the scene. Sinn Féin was a monolith. You had this arbitrary rupture at the beginning of 1921. But then, fat was immediately thrown on the fire by the Civil War. And you had the hardliners who led the anti-treaty side during the Civil War, who weren't Sinn Féin TDs, who who took the war to the new state. Fire was met with fire as the pro-treaty side responded. The division in the Dáil was now cauterized in the context of the Civil War. And it was the Civil War that created the legacy of the division uh, of the treaty. You also had then, I suppose, catalyzing this division as well, a certain ideological development within both the pro-treaty and anti-treaty traditions, which is to say that the anti-treaty tradition in the 1920s and the 1930s became uh, more socially radical. Fianna Fáil became the, the Labour Party with the lowercase l and attracted the support of small farmers. And the urban working classes and what became Fine Gael, what had been Commonwealth, the pro treaty side, they became increasingly associated with big farmers, with big business interests. So that then, I suppose, catalyzed the Civil War division. There was enough substance to it and there was enough personal animosity generated at that time to ensure that it is empowered right up to the present day. And I think it's important to say that although Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are in coalition, We haven't turned the page on civil war politics just yet either.
0: Colin Murphy, your play, The Treaty, is now being staged in London, where the treaty was actually signed 100 years ago today. Do you think that we'll be still making podcasts, or whatever the podcast of the 22nd century is, or writing plays or books or films about the treaty? In 2121? The obvious answer is that, is, is that I hope mine will be the definitive. <laughs> so they won't need to. <laughs> but, but
2: no, I, I, I do. I mean, one of the things you discover when you go back and do work on this period 100 years ago, as I as I did before with Inside the GPO about the rising is, it's actually very recent. Um, there were people, you know, p- people from the, from, from the treaty, one of the signatories of the treaty, Robert Barton, he lived into my lifetime. He died shortly after I was born. But, you know, in, like in theory... I could have met him, not that I'd have remembered Mm. it. And and there's still, and and there's still material coming out. I mean, we've just, there's just been a a discovery of Michael Collins' diaries. And there could be a detail in that that's, that's revelatory. So, so another hundred years, it it becomes more definitively history. But even if I hope issues like the border and like sectarian division are are not as present in a hundred years, What the treaty is about, is it's about one of the great essential political conflicts, and that's the conflict between incrementalism and radicalism. It's the conflict between pragmatism and idealism. Another way of putting it is the the conflict between evolution and revolution. The great paradox is the the great revolutionary Michael Collins becomes the one championing evolution, the freedom to achieve a greater freedom step by step. And that conflict, it's kind of at the heart of of all politics you know do we moderate and compromise or do we fight for the, the ideal and that's the story at the heart of the treaty and that story is going to be as acute and as relevant 100 years from
0: now That's it for today Thank you to Colin Murphy Gretchen Freeman Rona McGreevy and Michal O'Fartig Gretchen Freeman's book The Treaty and Michal O'Fartig's book with Liam Weeks Birth of the State the Anglo-Irish Treaty are on sale now You can find details about how to watch Colin Murphy's play, The Treaty, at fishample.com. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.